0: Excited about this event, but we're also a little bit nervous. So, it, like, might take us a few minutes to like get into the flow. But I'm sure we'll have a lot of nerdy, radical, whatever to talk about. So <laughs> it'll probably be fine. Um, so this is a CUPRIG McGill event, and CUPRIG is a social justice nonprofit that's based out of McGill campus, but tries to build links between um, the campus and the Montreal community. Um, this. This space um, Mm -hmm. is run by the Milton Park Community Association. Um, Yeah, so. There's bathrooms that are like if you go out and to the left, there's like signs. There's two bathrooms. Um, unfortunately, the the scent in them is really strong. Like there's a really strong like air freshener in there. Um, there are bathrooms that are downstairs in the food court that might not have that scent, but we're not positive. To get into the bathroom, there's a key like attached to like a blue lanyard, and it should be sitting on the desk like just behind you all. Um, you could also ask um, some of the Kewpert staff sitting at the table back there. Um we also have books. Do you want to talk about the library books that you brought, Anya? Yeah, sure. Um, so some of the panelists and I put together like a resource list of like cool like writable sci-fi books that you can find. And some of them are part of like the library collection.
1: So if you want to sign up for like a membership you can like check out the books and we
0: still have like before the year. Feel free to like browse and like look at stuff. There's also a convergence journals, um, a school school planner stuff, and like the local really market. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, great. Um, there's food in tables just like off to the side there. Feel free to get food whenever you want, but we are going to have like an official break between the two events. Um, yeah, so this panel is being recorded. Just keep that in mind. Um, if you decide to speak at some point, but you don't want your voice recorded, we can maybe edit it out after. Is that? Yeah, OK. So just like come up and tell us, if you do speak, that you want your voice edited out. Um, yeah, so um, we also wanted to acknowledge that we're on the territory of the Ganyagahaga. Um, we are on colonized lands, and that is very pertinent to like, the things we'll be talking about today. We definitely will be talking about race and colonialism and imperialism and these different like, themes that we also see in science fiction. Um, Montreal was traditionally known as Jajage, um, and it has long been a site of meeting and exchange of different nations. Um, Yeah, I think that's all I have to say for the intro. Sweet. Uh, We also wanted to talk about the second workshop just like a little bit,
1: uh, just to remind folks um, and kind of emphasize that... um Part of what we wanted to do in the second workshop was really give folks a chance to create some science fiction, so whether that be art or comics or poetry or short stories or report backs or whatever um, you want to do. So, um, like based either on your experiences or the discussions that we have or ideas that are you know floating around in your head. Um, so during the second workshop, we're hoping that the last forty-five minutes or so will be dedicated to doing that, um, and we're also planning to put together a zine based on this event. Um, so if um, you know, you're, you're stoked about what you're creating and you're cool with it, um, you can leave uh, that piece of creation with us and we'll uh, get it in a zine and then distribute that um, in the coming months. Um, so obviously none of that is required, uh, but just know that that is something uh, that's going to be coming
0: up. Yeah. Um, yeah, so this event came about basically because I don't know, Molly and I like to talk to each other about sci-fi all the time and like for years We've like had really intense like political discussions like um, Often like stemming from like things in common that we had like watched or read or just like generally Um, Yeah, and like Molly moved away about a year ago And then I knew she was coming to town So I contacted her like to see if like she wanted to do anything any like radical science fiction events And then this is what's coming out of that Um, Yeah, so we're gonna like introduce ourselves now a little bit. So I'm Becca. I work at Cupboard McGill. Um, I've been involved in like Montreal like community and like student activism for about the last six years or so. Um,
1: yeah. Um, hi, my name's Molly. I'm an um from Tuskwanaq or Calgary, which is in Treaty Seven territory. Um, however, being Métis, there are no treaties. Uh, that we have um, that is, are recognized by the government of Canada. Also, we might still technically be at war with them because I don't think we ever undeclared war, which is really <laughs> something to think about. Um, but um, yeah, I was living in Montreal for about six years. I'm involved in strike activism, uh, labor organizing, uh, harm reduction work, and anti-colonial stuff. Um, and I'm now living in uh, Edmonton, or Amisk- Amiskwatsiwiskaya again. Um, and I'm working on a Master's in Native Studies there right now. Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, My name is Noah. I'm very nervous. (laughs) Uh, I am from Montreal. I spent part of my life living in the States, um, which is a whole kind of dystopia in and of itself. Um, I don't know what else I'm supposed to say right now. I do a lot of workshops. Uh, I spend a lot of time hanging out with small children. And yeah, that's all. (laughs)
3: Um, my name is James. I, uh, I, um, I'm not from Montreal. I moved around a lot growing up, uh, and I have an Afrofuturist performance project called Skin Tone, and I'm like working on uh, developing a, like radical sci-fi conference that'll be some time. I had, It's a long story, but it'll be called The Congress of Radical Futurism, and it's in the, like, germinating stage.
0: Sweet, thanks. Cool. Um, yeah, so in, like, I we this is, like, billed as, like, science fiction, but, like, we wanted to just give a little disclaimer in case there's anyone who, like, really cares about, like, the categories of things like that. Like, we are going to be talking about, like, speculative fiction more generally sometimes. Um, yeah, like you know, if we like talk about like Buffy the Vampire Slayer or like Avatar: The Last Airbender, like we know those like aren't necessarily technically science fiction, but it might be relevant to like ever talk about other kinds of like um, like world building or like yeah, just like speculative fiction in general. <laughs> yeah.
1: Uh, so we are thinking that we'd probably talk for like around an hour or so um, because you know none of us are like experts in any of this were just really big nerds um, and we know that if you're here you're probably also nerds of various sizes and uh, extents um, so we did want to open it up for kind of a broader discussion um, sort of after around an hour um, so and also like questions or anything else that folks have um, so please feel free um, to you know think about stuff that you might uh, want to contribute because yeah we're just four people and there's like so many more people around
0: yeah right yeah. Cool. So, so we have like six guiding questions um, that we'll be using to like, like yeah, guide the discussion. The first one is, "What is your science fiction origin story, and when and how did you fall in love with science fiction?" Do you want to go?
3: Me? Sure.
0: <laughs> you looked, you looked excited.
3: Well, no, I was, I was, I was, curious, I was looking up to. I, I, I'll go. Great. Um, uh,
0: okay.
3: So I I think that uh, I got into science fiction like in a lot of different ways, and again like um, Becca was saying, uh, like a broad idea of science fiction like is a big influence on me. Um, firstly, I think that like Jordy LaForge was probably one of the first black people I ever saw. <laughs> So I mean I guess dwarf at the same time like black people person that is weird. Um, so I think that that really helped me fall in love with Star Trek um, pretty quickly. I was growing up in like small town Ontario and I was raised by my white mother so there was not a very uh, like a great deal of blackness around me and so I like glommed on to any examples of that I found in the media. So I think that that was like a huge entry point for me and um, and then of course like anybody, well, or like lots of people growing up, lots of places, outcast narratives appealed to me as I got older, and definitely there's lots and lots of those in sci-fi, especially like the young adult variety of science fiction or fantasy. So that was a big appeal. And then um, uh, I discovered that my grandfather was a big science fiction reader. and. Uh, The entire basement of my grandmother's house is like wall to wall lined with science fiction novels. And so uh, it then later on became a way for me to try and like become close to my grandfather who died the year I was born. Uh, And then lastly, as I started playing music, I became more and more steeped in the history of like Afrofuturism and the way in which uh, a lot of the free jazz artists, like, Usually people reference Sun Ra, but if you look at like Julius Hemphill and Archie Shepp and um, a lot of the, like the black artists group in St. Louis, like a lot of those people were very engaged in both radical politics and radical world building. So whether that was like the black artists group specifically creating, like getting this building and just running workshops and creating plays and stuff or... Um, or simply the idea of like creating new musical territory to um, opening up new musical territory that uh, could be considered valued, but might not be valued conventionally. Uh, so those are the kinds of throughways that I got into science fiction with, by, through, anyway. Stop
0: talking. <laughs> that was great. Yeah, I can, I can go.
1: Yeah. Um, so I was really into sci-fi as a kid, uh, and fantasy as well. Um, up until about the time I was 12, I was like reading a lot of Isaac Asimov, not getting very much of it, um, I go, and kind of combined that with like a lot of like Greek and Norse mythology. I was really into all of that, and then I hit junior high and decided that it wasn't cool to be into sci-fi, and uh, went into through a very dark period uh, of my teenage years without the comforts and glories of any science fiction, um, which, yeah and just it was really a pretentious probably very infuriating young person for a while uh and then when i was about 22 actually right before i moved to montreal to to start going to school um my brother sat me down and we watched the first reboot of the star trek movies um and it's like totally cheesy to say but like to- completely fell back in love with sci-fi I was like what have i been doing with myself like i can't believe this Um, and yeah, the rest is history, um, science, science fiction, like there's so much going on and there's like so much goodness. And I think the other thing that really got me back in was reading Dune, like picking up and reading Dune and being like, holy crap, this whole novel is about the interplay between religion and colonialism. Like this is amazing. This is an amazing document, like explaining how that works. Um, and yeah, that's, that's it for me. Kind of simple,
0: but mm You can go. Um, yeah, I think it's interesting, like, I'm noticing, like, some of the similar things. I'm like, yeah, me too! But that's great. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I also, like, from a young age, always really liked fantasy and, like, sci-fi. I was, like, really obsessed with Star Wars when I was younger. Um, but then I think it was, like, so when I, so I'm mixed race, um, and my dad is from Shanghai, and my mom is, like, a white American, and when I was about 10 years old, we moved to Shanghai. Um, and and like, while I lived there, like I was bullied a lot. like I, I like I was bullied for being fat and like really awkward and like these other kind of things. And I feel like it was like while I was living there that I just like, would just like binge watch like sci-fi like for days at a time, and I like got so into it because I really like I really liked the aspects of world building. I really liked that I could kind of like escape in this thing, um, and then like that kind of continued like moving back to like rural Pennsylvania and like still like obviously not really fitting <laughs> in there, um, and and yeah, I feel like I really like something. I also like really liked. Um, from like science fiction or like watching these things is like there was this theme of like kind of like a collective struggle and like there was like relationship building like through this struggle and I like got really attached to like these like groups of people who like formed these like really intense bonds and like this trust and like these like friendships and like chosen family. Um, So I think that was a theme that like really spoke to me a lot like when I was like a sad baby outcast. But yeah.
2: Oh, it's my turn, okay. I, my parents are both pretty nerdy, especially my dad, so I was watching Star Trek from the time that I was pretty small. Um, I, like, would wander around quoting Star Trek before I was actually allowed to watch it, <laughs> and my dad made sure that my brother and I had seen like the original Star Wars by the time that we were both like five, probably. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I um, was a very awkward kid with like no friends, and all I did was read books. So I spent a lot of time reading like uh, Ursula Le Guin and Madeleine L'Engle and Ray Bradbury, and yeah, like Dune. Um, those like terrible version like that where they take like Star Trek and make it into a book (laughs) (laughs) They also do that with X files like I spent my entire like middle and high school time hiding in the library during lunch reading those books because they were all in my school library Um, yeah I don't know I think it's one of those things where sci-fi sort of just saved my life Um, it was like a way to just to see, yeah, I guess the outcast narrative that other people have mentioned. And like, I think now it's a bit more common that there's like explicitly like neuro, weird, or whatever characters in shows on TV. But I think before there was that and before it was common, there was like Spock and Data and Seven of Nine. And so those were some of the first like TV characters that I ever had any kind of like ability to relate to. Yeah. Um.
1: So yeah, it's just kind of like this idea of like, the outcast narrative and like, finding space for yourself um, and being able to use science fiction as sort of like a launch pad to, to explore things that you're interested in or to, to utilize uh, and to take from. Um, next question is, uh, what in science fiction has been generative for you with regards to your politics and organizing? Do you
0: want to start, Molly?
1: Yeah, I mean, I could start. Yeah, I mean, I think there's like there's a lot of things. I mean, what. Um Noah, you were saying about, you know, finding characters that you really related to. I mean, one of the first things that I, like, firstly, after I got over the fact that Star Trek's actually funny, for some reason, when I started watching Star Trek, I was like, it's going to be really serious. It's going to be dealing with, it's supposed to be super cerebral and deals with all these big problems, but didn't realize how hilarious it was, even though they are dealing with all this really serious stuff. Um, But then encountering Spock for myself, like, also as a mixed race person um, and as somebody who's like, you know. A mixed race that's often referred to as half-breed, like pejoratively or like in a reclaimed sense, um, was really fascinating for me because, half fascinating, Spock, um, but because, uh, thank you for laughing, um, uh, you know, he, he deals with all of this stuff on the day-to-day, right? Like well-meaning friends um you know and he's this he's the one half-breed um Vulcan character in a ship that's full of humans um and even though they have these really intense relationships and they're constantly going through these intense experiences and the, it, everything's really profound like as soon as the plot requires it um Spock's half-breed nature becomes the subject of the plot right so um I always remembered this one episode of Star Trek I can't remember what it was called but um Kirk gets replaced with kind of an evil android of himself, and as he's this android is being created, he's in kind of like the spinning machine, and he yells something like, um, "I can't stand your half breed interference," or something like that. And his uh, android clone um, repeats that line to Spock at one point, and that's how Spock clues in that this isn't the real Kirk because of that kind of friendship. Um, but you know, every time something happens to Kirk, right? This this kind of seems to come up right like this half-breed thing um, and Spock's constantly battling against his half-breed nature and there's all this tension and stuff which is like very much a narrative when you're a mixed-race person like you're in between worlds there's no real place for you and you know one of the things that always happens in science fiction when you have these half-breed characters is they're always subject to violence and often generally die you know so um, I don't know if anybody's seen the truly excellent uh, Con movie Ginger Snaps Three. Um, <laughs> But, yeah, I mean, that's. if you haven't seen it, it's, it's worth a watch. It's pretty funny. Uh, but it's, it's a werewolf movie, and um, there is this half-breed character who, you know, you know from the beginning he's going to die, right? Like, everybody hates his guts for no reason. Like, he kind of sucks. You know, he's on his way out. Um, and so you get, you know, these half-breeds, and, and Star Trek, I think, in particular, is really, really good at creating these liminal characters who are, you know, doing things that you know, especially if you're a mixed race indigenous person, you don't get to see yourself doing ever, right? Like indigenous people aren't in space except for in places like Star Trek. Um, Indigenous people don't have a future except for in things like Star Trek. Um, you know, colonialism is, you know, the be all and the end all, except for places like Star Trek. Uh, and so, you know, through this kind of world building and this future projection, you can start to see yourself in that and you can start to see, you know, how to navigate these relationships where even though, you know, you have these, you have these friendships, you have these relationships, um, that kind of, that oppression narrative and that marginalization still seeps through on how to deal with that. you know, another one of my favorite characters too is Worf, and I've always read Worf as an indigenous kid who was scooped. Um, there's an episode in the first uh, series of TNG where one of the lines is, uh, you know, he's, the Klingons are coming on board and he's like, Captain, don't even worry, I got this. I know everything about my culture. I've been reading up on it. And I just remember, like crying because, you know, that's that's how so many uh, disconnected indigenous people, you know, have to learn to reconnect, right, because of the violences of colonialism, whether they've been adopted out or whether, you know, for safety reasons their family has been, you know, denying their indigeneity or whatever, right? And, and that's not the kind of thing that, you know, gets talked about in the mainstream. Um, and so you get these little hints of it here or there. Um, and ways a being? Oh, and also, uh, I think a big part of what's been really generative for me um, is the way that science fiction causes you to look at it critically. Uh, and you know, once again, so try not to use Star Trek as all the examples, but uh, <laughs> Star Trek is great for that because um, when you when you watch Star Trek, uh, you know, it's it's about basically like a a huge military organization, super hierarchical, really like violent, like really imperialist a lot of the time. But when you read against the grain of it, you start to see how a lot of what that narrative is doing is actually demonstrating and reflecting back all of the deficiencies of sort of that like benign conquest, that like liberal multiculturalist narrative. Um, And so being able to like take that and then project that onto society to say like, you know, what are these stories that we're being told and how can we read against that and how can we act against it? Yeah, so, yeah, uh, anybody else? Uh,
3: um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I shared some, of uh, or like in a different kind of way, I felt some of the similar resonances when I was younger and watching Star Trek. Um, less so Star Wars, mm. <laughs> it, uh, it's, and I wonder how much of that has to do with, like, the storytelling format. Like, there's a lot more character beats in something like Star Trek than there's time for in Star Wars because it's limited by uh, the cinematic reflections. I also, um, when I was younger, I remember the first time I ever was concerned, or I ever read the read somebody else raise concerns about representation was through... Um, a, uh, a Nalo Hopkinson co- uh, collection of short stories called So Long Been Dreaming. Mm-hmm. And she edited the anthology, but they're not all her stories, but it explicitly talked about reversing the gaze of science fiction from one of what are the colonizers experiencing as they explore this new territory to what is, what is the experience of being explored as a new territory? Or, well, anyway, obviously that language... Is imperfect, but um, and I think that that opened a lot of doors for me about thinking about the future and how sci-fi imagines the future. Um, like you wouldn't necessarily. Well, I don't know. When I was younger and I read Neuromancer, I didn't like think. Why are they these like? Why are the only black people in this entire book space rastas who literally like hotbox their spaceship? Like that, that's that's it. That's, that is blackness. Dub music, marijuana, and they're like apparently good mechanics. Uh, like they're you know they're helpful um, to the protagonist who's obviously this uh, this exceptional. Um, Uh, well, exceptional sort of P.I. character. Uh, And so I thought... Anyway, so that became really interesting to me, and it's very curious to look at the ways in which sci-fi is both, like, valuable from a representational perspective and not. Mm -hmm. And I think that Star Trek is also a good example of that, because kind of... Well, kind of an inverse of what you're saying, but it's like... Star Trek is this sort of like liberal dream of like oh once we're in communion with other species then all of humanity then a certain like kind of globalism can take over and we're all the same and this idea this like um, this sort of fiction well you can even see within the stories itself of Star Trek that it's fictive this idea of like oh all our t- alterity is gone and we're all together as one. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, yeah, that's a lot of the same stuff as Molly
0: was saying, I guess. No. No. Um, oh, I'm feeling like it's feeling a little difficult to, like, synthesize my thoughts, but, yeah, and you both were, like, hitting such good points. Um, not to, like, continuously repeat myself, but I feel like the, like, relationship-building aspect of science fiction is, like, such a huge part to me and is something that i like like have found like really inspiring or like what like really drew me to it in a lot of ways like like yeah just like a lot of like science fiction is about um is like about like struggles against like oppression of some kind or like struggles against like an empire or like i don't know like often like people like living on the fringes um and and i guess like what i what i appreciate about that in a lot of ways is how it how it kind of like demonstrates like how people have to make like really hard choices all the time, and how like mm-hmm. it's like the like there's not really like a political purity, or like it's not really like easy to know what to do all of the time, um, which I think is like really relevant in, like thinking about like a political struggle. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think that like one of the most not to like always talk about Star Trek But how do you not always talk about Star Trek? (laughs) Like I love Deep Space Nine so much Like I think that like watching Deep Space Nine I think I first watched it when I was about 18 So it was like a little later than I watched some other stuff, but um, Yeah, like I found it like, I found like a lot of it like really inspiring to me because it was like a change from the narrative of like um, like a lot of the narrative of a lot of things is just like non-violence and like um, like working within systems and like there's like a kind of like political analysis that like like yeah like some sci-fis um it's like there's like this utopia or like there's this like group who like knows the best way to do things or whatever like i think that like comparing like the next generation of star trek to like deep space nine is a really good comparison because the next generation does kind of like um yeah it is like this It is, like, a very, like, imperialist, like, colonial thing. Um, and, And, like, this, yeah, the liberal humanist, like, oh, we don't, like, fight, we don't have wars anymore. Like, they're all, like, in the show, they're always talking about how, like, oh, yeah, we once, like, had gender oppression or, like, oh, once upon a time, people, like, cared about the color of each other's skin or whatever. But, like, now we don't. And they're, like, trying to teach all of these other cultures to, like, be better or whatever. But then, like, in Deep Space Nine, like, you see, like, a story about, like, like, what do you, like, how... Like the Federation like has no idea how to deal with like decolonization like has no idea how to like handle that um, like a lot of the like principles of the Federation just like don't apply in these situations where like people are actually like struggling for their survival or like struggling against like a dominant force and yeah um, I don't know. I did you guys want to say anything else yeah. did you have anything you wanted to add
2: um, I mean, I guess a lot of the things that y'all have already said. Um, one thing that I think a lot about with science fiction is like um, the use of technology, and especially like the use of technology as it relates to like I guess what in non-sci-fi world would usually be like disability, but the way that that stuff is often addressed through like futuristic te- technology. So like one obvious example being Jordi Loforge. Um, and I think it's really interesting to see the ways in which uh, like disability or just like your body or your brain working differently is normalized through like this like futuristic technology or just like the possibilities that we may one day achieve through technology, etc. cetera. Um, but then also the ways in which that stuff like doesn't hold or, or ends up fucking up which I guess is kind of the next question we're supposed to talk about but um, but yeah I mean I think when there's just like different possibilities and different roles and I guess again not to only talk about Star Trek but like when um, just like the ways in which different just ways of existing um, end up. Playing out, and and the ways in which they're normalized, and the ways in which they're like exoticized or othered, um, and. I think, again, like characters like, um, for example, like the relationship between Data and Geordi was one of the first, um, like friendships on television where I was like, oh, maybe I will have friends when I'm older. Um, and just like thinking about the ways in which people's um, strengths and abilities end up being where they're sort of directed, whether that's because they're extremely logically minded and therefore that makes them good at engineering or whether they, you know, have um, just like whatever it is that someone uh, can or cannot do. There's a lot more space and there's a lot more space. There's a lot, like. There's like like literally yes, physically and metaphorically a lot more space and just like a lot um, the possibility is greater. And I think also with like because so many science fiction things are there's often this like overarching like moral that's being told whether it's like throughout one episode or throughout an entire series or in the context of a movie like often that means that you have like A sort of like call out or whatever like an acknowledgement that something or someone is being treated unfairly or is being discriminated against and then there's often like a lot like the sort of like different perspectives around that with some kind of resolution within like you know the space of 40 minutes Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think that's also really interesting to see like how many social problems can we come up with enough to fill like you know five different series for example or just like whatever else and to think about the ways in which um, the kind of like thinking has to go into all the different perspectives and who it is in whatever series, be it Star Trek or something else, who's going to take what position and how does that sort of represent um, what we know about that character, or what we know about that race of characters, or what we know about that, um, you know, like planet of characters or whatever.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Um, I guess just to like build on that into, because Becca, Becca and I were talking about this a little bit in terms of. Of relationships and, and finding new people I guess so like two points uh, on that are the ways in which um, and like this, this does happen I think generally in a very liberal way but there's a lot of potential there the ways in which new types of beings and people are, are brought into kind of like personhood and humanity um, and so I guess like a non Star Trek example is Farscape um, they're on a living ship and the ship is alive and is a being, and like gives birth at one point, and then is a mother, and um, you know has this will of its own, where you you know it's not just something that can be used and exploited, and you know for, for whatever purposes of the people who are on it, it it's ne- its needs and its desires need to be taken into account and negotiated, and it becomes part of this relationship building. Um, and Beck and I also talked about how in the next generation, in particular, one of the things that has really stuck out for us is the fact that they rarely question each other. Um, so, folks might remember the episode yesterday's Enterprise, um, when the Enterprise C I want to say, comes through the wormhole for the bat- from the battle at Khitomer, um, and the entire timeline changes and the only one who notices is Guinan, and she just has this kind of like vague feeling about it, like something's off, something's wrong. And when she goes and talks to Picard about it, Picard has an absolutely no reason you know, to to believe what she's saying, has absolutely no reason to take any sort of action that could potentially put his ship in danger that's going to send, you know, he has to send this whole other crew back to certain death basically, but he trusts her enough and says like, okay, like you said this thing, we're gonna do it. You know, and just that like intense solidarity that exists between those two characters in particular, but that you see over and over again in that series where you don't have to understand what somebody's experiencing for you to trust it and for you to take action on it in a way that like respects what that perspective is, is something that like has really, really stuck with me and has really informed how I approach my own relationships, right? You don't, it's not about creating this idea of like empathy with other people where you can feel what they're feeling, right? It's not that like golden rule do unto others is blah da da. It's saying like, you know, you have this experience that, you know, I can't understand and that I don't understand, but I trust that experience and I respect it enough to to like live with it and work with it and work with you around it, you know? Um, yeah. Do you have anything you wanted to add on that? No. no okay. Anybody else send anything?
2: Uh, no. Great.
0: Um. Yeah, so we can, I, yeah, kind of, like, logically following that is also, like, what are, like, the limitations and failures of science fiction? I mean, there's, like, a lot of reactionary bullshit in there, so, like, what are some of the themes that we see there? Um, Like, for example, like, something Molly and I were talking about um, was how, like, yeah, part of why we all love science fiction is because, like, we can sometimes see, like, different representations or, like, yeah, we can see, like, people in positions of, like, autonomy or, like, expertise or whatever that, like, we wouldn't, that is harder to see, like, in our, like, everyday lives or whatever. Um, yeah, like, just seeing, like, really, like, badass women of colour or, like, seeing, yeah, characters that we can relate to. Um, but also at the same time, like, it still falls, Victim to like the same thing that the rest of society does where like there's like a lot of really great characters But then there's also this like mediocre white man who's still like the main character who's still like everyone who everyone like still has to answer to that Like yeah, firefly. That's, yes. Yeah, uh, firefly. Definitely yeah Firefly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
2: That's what we are.
0: What we are all thinking.
3: Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um. in, in, uh, particularly of note about Firefly is that it was inspired by Joss Whedon's reading about the Civil War and sympathizing with the South.
1: No, yeah. I didn't no. know that. No, <laughs> yeah, yeah. that, so <laughs> that makes it, so
3: much it's sense. A, it's a story. Well, if you, uh, like, <laughs> well, uh, Joss Whedon ruined himself. <laughs> 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 like, That's but um. Anyways, that's an interesting thing about that particular story is that he talked openly in interviews about how it was inspired by his reading of like the Reconstruction and feeling sorry for the Southerners and like what it would be like to be a Southerner and under that context. So the the like bad guys in that are the Union and the people we're supposed to root for are the Confederates being squashed down by the Hegemonic. Anyway. But.
0: Yeah, um, and just another thing that I, like, watching Firefly, like, I'm sure other things do this too, but, um, something that always, like, really bothered me about it is, like, it has this, like, weird blend of, like, Western and, like, Eastern culture in the future or whatever, but then it's, like, but you are still pretty much seeing just, like, the same types of, like, Western institutions and, like, most of the people are white and, like, I don't know. It's, like, they wanted to, like, take this, like, element of, like, asian but, like, without any actual element, like, nothing else. Like, it was very much, like, an aesthetic, um, like, yeah, just, like, using, like curse words from Mandarin and, like, pronouncing it so badly that, like, I can't even understand what they're saying and, like, stuff like that. Um, yeah, so it, like, yeah, it was, like, this, like, oh, like, look at this, like, future where, like, cultures are blended, but, like, still, obviously, like, the Western (laughs) aspect is still, like, completely dominant of, like, the actual, like, norms of that society.
1: Yeah, and and kind of the whole idea of world governments, you know, like, so much sci-fi is based on, especially, like, if it's sort of future and, like, space-themed sci-fi is based on, like, each planet has its own government, you know, like, and that's the world government, as though that's a thing that we should be striving for. Mona and I were talking about this a little bit earlier, too. Um, And that world government always just so happens to be, like, highly Americanized. Like, what a coincidence, you know? Like, it's America that's going to take us into this future. It's, like, these Western, um, like... Euro-American values, like post-Enlightenment, et cetera, et cetera, that's going to get us there, um, and you know a lot of that gets really tied in with militarism uh, in these interesting ways. I always think of Ender's Game, right? Yeah. Um, which I recently, I, you know, it's recently been told to me that Ender's Game's ending is not actually much of a surprise ending. I am always shocked every time I read it, but <laughs> like, uh, you know, it's it's all about you know if we're if we're going to make progress, we have to make progress through these systems, right? And and the military, then you know, obviously in, in Ender's Game, the military is not a benevolent institution, um, but at the same time, right? You either have these external threats, right? So you have these anxieties that you know I always think of them as kind of settler anxieties, right? This the invasion anxiety the assimilation anxiety, right? The Borg, the, the buggers, like whoever um, is coming to, to destroy our way of life, right? And that's like extremely reactionary, right? Um, and, you know, Ender's Game, I think, if I remember, correctly, was written in the, the 80s, I want to say, right? And so like it's got all this Cold War anxiety shit like rolled into it and, and all of this other stuff. Um, and you, you see it now too with like the trend for dystopias, right? Where while, while a lot of that, um, anxiety is now shifted to being aimed at the government, it's not about getting rid of the government, right? It's, it's about reforming the government. It's about maintaining those structures, but making these structures better. So for example, at the end of the Hunger Games, right? She like, she shoots the woman who's going to be president, but then somebody steps in and takes her place, and that's apparently fine, right? <laughs> So, and also just this conception of the dystopia as something that we're headed towards, right? As if it's not already that bad for a lot of us, I've always found really interesting. So it's like, you know, that that those mainstream limitations always... I guess like project or like create their own audience that they're speaking towards, right? So even when, you know, we get that little bit of representation of folks have been talking about, we get, you know, black characters, we get mixed race characters, characters whose disabilities, um, you know, aren't like as marginalized as they are right now, you know, the overall audience and the overall theme and, and the people that are being talked to and the problems that are being worked out are often like, you know, mainstream, cis hetero supremacist white supremacist problems. Um, and that's why I think like some of the more radical science fiction that's coming out right now, um, is really exciting because it kind of, it takes it beyond that. It doesn't presume this audience, right?
3: Yeah. Two other, uh, world government sci-fi, Starship Troopers, Independence Day. Yeah. And the victory conditions are always like, look at us coming together. And then now humanity's problems are solved. (laughs) Um, but But I think also, yeah, what you were saying about, um, Molly, about uh, government being, or governmentalization being the solution, I think a lot of science fiction is pretty unimaginative about potential social structures and about what alternatives to um, the the current state of affairs or what the, the end game of the current state of affairs would look like. And I think that that's kind of a huge failure. It's, um, and I, I don't know. There, I think there's like two strands to that. One is like the hard sci fi people who are like, well, we're, we like crunched the data and this is what the future <laughs> is going to be like, you know? We like ran some s- economic simulations and like there's going to be no jobs. So, this, and so there's these people who have a certain scientism in their science fiction who want to insist on the world progressing in a certain way. And I think that that's a dangerous perspective. And then from the other side, I think that there's, um, not that these are like the only two problems or only two, but there's also like a great deal of sci-fi that is really only explicitly commenting on the current contemporary state of affairs Mm -hmm. and as much as it's displacing that setting in the quote-unquote future, which isn't a real thing, obviously, um, or the past, like a lot of fantasy is doing the same thing. Uh, It's imagining, anyways, it's limiting its imagining to the kinds of situations that currently exist instead of being open to the fact that even if you actually look at world history... The range of ways of people interacting and associating are like way, way broader. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's like, yeah, definitely in fantasy, but also in science fiction, in, in an inadequate amount of engaging with that potential for talking about social structures and stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not obviously, there. There's some examples that do it well. I guess like Ursula K. Le Guin's *The Dispossessed* has like some really good examples of alternate mm-hmm. society. There's this woman, Vonda McIntyre, who writes. Um, she, she wrote a lot of novelizations of Star Trek. It's uh, so no always talking about it. And uh, she has a series about a science ship that goes out and they have no weapons and everyone's like polyamorous on it. Anyways, she like really tries to push the boundaries. And like Heinlein always did with respect to interpersonal relationships too, but on um, broader scales there's, like, not as much, and certainly not in the TV movie realm, versus...
0: Yeah, maybe you guys, like, already explained this fully enough, but it was just, like, making me think about, um, yeah, like, these kind of, like, futures that science fiction often shows us, it, like, it is, like, society's problems have been eliminated by having, like, a world government, by having, like, just, like, by being, like, completely unified in this way, where it's, like, oh, there's, like, no more, like, hunger because like everyone is fed like through these machines in the same way or like you can all get your food from the same place in this like yeah or like everyone like has like jobs assigned in these ways or and like but yeah i don't know it's like yeah it's interesting to think about how it often like shows us like oh like this utopia means that like um everything is controlled in this like very like in this very like uniform way yeah
3: Mm -hmm.
0: yeah
1: and and at the same time Like what I find so interesting about that kind of thing just like generally, right? Like this idea of the utopia um, or like the liberal utopia, where like, like thinking again about Star Trek, where it seems like the conflicts that are played out in Star Trek are either they're conflicts from like less developed worlds or less developed peoples, peoples who don't share our values, like that's where the conflict comes from, or they're conflicts that are kind of inevitable, right? So thinking about the Cardassian Federation Treaty and the fact that it creates the neutral or um, that like border zone with com- the marquis come out of, right? Um, That's kind of inevitable when you have, you know, these people working together to try to find best solutions There's always gonna be people falling through the cracks, right? This idea of always falling through the cracks So like in Star Trek, you know, it's this utopia where nobody really has to work people work because they want to because it's interesting Uh, They've gotten rid of money Um, They've gotten rid of scarcity, right? It's a post-scarcity world like full of abundance except like once you get at, once you stop being one of the federation's chosen people right like one of their like bright little angels they're like hyper productive like hyper militarized people right like you always see you know they go to sort of like border town bars to try to find stuff and there's money and there's gambling and there's poverty and there's sex work and there's all of these things that within this liberal utopia you know they they want to get rid of or it's, you know they've supposedly already abolished right so it's like it's not necessarily about living in this utopia it's about presenting a liberal utopia that even they're admitting, you know, is a facade essentially, or it's like a veneer. Um, and I think that's a big part of what DS9 does really well is you have this like Cisco who just takes no shit and just like does whatever he wants is such an incredible foil to Picard who's like very straight and narrow, a big giant nerd, like not very like not great casual interpersonal skills. Um, and like very, you know, straight and narrow, follows the rules, uh, et cetera. And then you have Cisco, who's like, I'm just here to get this shit done. And also, I happen to be a religious leader and a mystic. Um, <laughs> you know, it's like it's a very interesting combination of of characteristics. Uh, or you have, for example, Mar- So I have this. Okay, folks have heard of Woman on the Edge of Time. If you haven't, maybe you haven't read it. But um, so, Woman on the Edge of Time. I have this like. Okay, it's a low-key conspiracy theory, but I like semi believe that they're like. deliberately keeping it off the shelves, because I don't know about y'all, but it's maybe the best science fiction book I've ever written or read. I did not write it, (laughs) (laughs) did not write it. Um, But right, like that more than any other sci-fi that I've encountered, uh, the way that it talks about the intersections of um, like race, class, disability, gender, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, in this, you know, both like dystopian and utopian way is absolutely brilliant. Um, and you know, it was the seventies. It has gender neutral pronouns that, and like people use those pronouns now sometimes and like, you know, it's like, it's incredible, uh, but you, it's super hard to find. Why is that? Right? Anyway, conspiracy theory. But. So yeah, this idea of like targeted liberation and this targeted liberation from conflict except for the conflict that's sort of inherent, right? And it just so happens that the kind of conflict that we're experiencing now is what happens to be inherent to ourselves as humans or as beings, right? Interacting with other beings, which I'm not necessarily willing to buy that. No
2: one do I don't know I mean I think kind of similar to what everyone's saying like the limitations of sci-fi are necessarily going to be like the limitations of human imagination which is going to be restricted largely by like what currently and or historically exists in society and I think it's not surprising that um the the stuff that strays farthest away from like current social structures or just like recreating or somehow reforming them tends to come from people that are um, not like White men, for example. So, like, Star Trek is just basically recreating all these things in a slightly, like, alternate universe way, um, trying to solve certain problems, but it's still mimicking a lot of the same things that, like, have existed and do exist. But then, if you look at, like, stuff that, yeah, like, stuff by Ursula Le Guin or stuff by Octavia Butler and Nail Hopkinson, it, it starts to really just, like, stray and they're just creating. Um, worlds that are more worlds into their own, especially like a lot of the things in, in what Ursula Le Guin does where she, she literally just creates entire planets and they have nothing to do with Earth and it's not necessarily mimicking um, and there's not an attempt to do that and, and so often I think in those kind of works there's a lot more exploration of what else could be possible without constantly reflecting back to, like, what is it like on Earth? Um, And the farther away that you get from that, I think the more people start to play with stuff. So again, like, for example, in like The Left Hand of Darkness, the way that she plays around with gender, um, and this idea of like being like, ambisexual or genderless or whatever, whatever, whatever. And then you have, um, in that book, a character who's coming into that as an outsider and trying to sort of make sense of it and basically being like, what the fuck is this? Like, how do you all deal? And they're just like, this is just, how we are it's not a thing Um, like you're weird calm down and so I think like different stories that sort of flip social narratives without yeah without um, referencing back to the dominant narrative all the time and just positioning a different thing as the new dominant narrative Um, and so I think that yeah the the more that that can happen I think the more that there starts to be like different possibilities that are actually different, they are actually like alternative, Um, often I think it those ones are often things that are like taking place on other planets or in radically different worlds specifically because people aren't really good at letting go of what we're used to and so it's like well if you set it on earth it can only be so different or else people are going to freak out. Um, and so setting things on other planets or with you know um, p- characters or creatures or beings that aren't necessarily supposed to be entirely human allows for more flexibility because you're not going to have someone being like, well, that's not how humans function because the simple answer is well they're not humans so it's fine. Um, and yeah, I think with a lot of things like other folks have been saying, it's like things still fall into the same narrative traps or the same kind of like, representation traps that we see elsewhere, um, and a lot of the times it's like with an attempt to, um, yeah, just like meet certain social norms and not really transgress them or not really push them that hard. So um, one thing I, I was thinking about in particular and in, in kind of thinking about this panel is the whole storyline with um, Julian Bashir in Deep Space Nine where he's like this kid who's born and is like, you know, like basically like would be deemed like Developmentally delayed, or whatever, and so his parents opt for this, um, like genetic restructuring thing to make him like smarter, better, faster, stronger. Um, and he doesn't really know that until, like, you know, he's sort of um, well into whatever into his life. Um, and when he finds out, there's this whole crisis because he's like, Well, you know, like, you wouldn't have kept me that way, you wouldn't have wanted me if I was a kid like this. Um, and so having to, to sort of do that, and I think. It's interesting to see the way that that plays out, but I think it also just like, plays off the same stuff that we see like in our you know, non-sci-fi world.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and so thinking about like, how is that stuff dealt with and how similar is it to what we're seeing like in the world that we live in and when that stuff does push um, those kinds of like common social social phenomena or like social narratives, and when it doesn't, and I think it's really telling like how far something can be pushed, and that's like you know based on like when uh, the timing of something. So like you know stuff in the eighties could only push certain kinds of things, and stuff in the nineties could only push certain kinds of things. Stuff now can only push certain kinds of things, and it's obviously all of that is going to be based on like contemporary politics and whatever else. But I think it's really interesting to look at those trends and to see like you know. It's just really telling to see like what are the current fears, um, what are people willing to like be pushed on, and what are people not like? What are the things that are like you know considered so sacred within our social structures that like we can't actually play with them even in sci-fi, because that would just be too much. Mm-hmm.
1: Cool. Yeah, and that actually segues really great into the next one. Um, so, science fiction uh, is often seen as like a progressive or boundary pushing genre, right? So, like Star Trek had the first interracial kiss, um, and the first lesbian kiss, and the, oh, really? <laughs> On
0: on like on broader DS9. television or something yeah, like that DS9, there's yeah. some like specific specification, like the first like lesbian kiss on national television or something okay. like that yeah.
1: yeah yeah um yeah so it's like whether it's representation or whether it's the narrative or the problems that they're addressing or you know whatever it is um but also it attracts a very reactionary and often conservative audience right so we see it in things like gamergate right like these super conservative nerds dogpiling on people for whatever reason going after them Douchey bros. yeah and so the question was like why do you think that is how does it, how does it hold and attract both of these audiences?
3: Can I? Yeah. Um, I, I think it's a lot to do with the fact that the future is contested territory. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I mean, I think I it's best down. exemplified by that meme that goes around, like, this is the future liberals want. And then <laughs> it's, what, like, it doesn't even matter what the picture is. <laughs> that captions is talking, like I think the sci-fi gets at this very, there are people who are literalists about their science fiction and they're very concerned if they don't like the world that's being represented literally in the science fiction. Um, there's a really good essay by an author whose name I can't remember. But it's called Guided by the Beauty of Their Weapons, and it's um, about, it's a deep analysis of Vox Day, uh, who is the founder of the Sad Rabbit Puppies Movement, which I don't know if people are familiar with, more or less. It's um, quickly, it was, so over the last three years, there's been a concerted effort by these two groups that used to be sort of the same thing but aren't really anymore. One group tried to distance itself from the like more objectionable group and they're called the sad puppies and the rabid puppies. Um, the rabid puppies are the more objectionable one. The sad puppies are trying to friend themselves as moderates. But they're both reactionary groups who felt that uh, the Hugos were t- being taken over, the Hugos are the World Sci-Fi Awards, were being taken over by a social justice warrior um, concerns, and that too many of the awards were going to books like, um, I think the book that kicked it off was actually Anne Leckie's uh, Ancillary Justice, which is um, a book about a computer virus that re- replicates itself, and it does like very strange things with gender and stuff. Um, that's a super reductive. <laughs> just read the book. <laughs> um, but uh, so once that book won, then these people like, sci-fi is being taken away from us. It belongs to us. These are the same people as, who run Gamergate. So they started publishing uh, slates of people to vote for. And the problem with the Hugos is anyone can vote if they become a member, um, but not only vote. Uh, the, it's open nominations so how the ballots how the ultimate like top ten list or whatever gets determined is based on people sending in ballots and uh, so with these people have all sending in identical ballots, they increase the likelihood of their picks getting on the list, because otherwise people are just like, I don't know, oh, I read this book, I like this, you know, it's like lots of people like your aunt or something who read a lot of sci-fi from the drugstore, like, filling up these ballots. Um, Anyway, so it became a huge thing, and I think that they... uh, they sort of hijacked the whole thing, and even if you watched last year's Hugo's, um, a bunch of awards were went to no one because the only things that were nominated were these sad puppy, rabid puppy suggestions, and nobody wanted to give them most pa- that power. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, well, anyways, I think that uh, those people are as concerned about the future as people who want a more radical future, and so I think that. Uh, this something like what gets considered the best sci-fi picks up on a lot of the same insecurities and concerns and fears. It's just um, there's fundamental ideological breakdown about why uh, about which way these things should go. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah.
0: that was amazing. yeah <laughs> that's that great It that was like perfect. <laughs> um
3: how yeah. somebody else has to say same
1: Um Yeah, I've got a couple, of, I guess, just to go off on that. Um, yeah, I love the idea of, like, everybody's invested in the future in different ways. Uh, it always it reminds me of the um, Jamal's essay in uh, Octavia's Brood, right, this idea of Star Wars and everybody thinks of themselves as the rebels in Star Wars, right, whether or not you're the Empire. <laughs> um, and so this idea of, of that, uh, you know, that conservative and like particularly think about conservative masculinity and toxic masculinity and how it's always under attack, right? It's it's never it's never something that's generative, it's always something that's constantly being taken away from and constantly has to be defended and guarded. And I think that that's, you know, you know, even when you're looking at something like Star Wars, right? That that's an easy reading. Um, to do on either side, right? Uh, and I think too, like a lot of sci-fi, you know, as we've been talking about, gets kind of underscored by these ubermenches as well, right? So, you know, whether or not they're actually ubermenches or they're just like the mediocre Mel Reynolds of the world, or you know, even even like Spock or Data, you know, um, can be read as these ubermenches, right? Like they they're beyond the the average person. Um, they have kind of these like, you know, additional powers that that people want and can people can like mobilize around and mobilize under, right? Like. That's kind of one of I think the big questions, you know, of Star Trek is like, why isn't Spock the captain? He's like way smarter. He like doesn't have to sleep that much. He's like telepathic abilities, like all this other stuff. Um, but you know, there's like. All of these things that I think really draw conservatives and draw people who who want to consolidate their own power to this. And the other thing that we forget too, and like I'm I'm really bad for this, is we forget that a lot of science fiction creators are quite conservative. Mm. So like thinking about like Orson Scott Card or even like Kim Stanley Robinson. Like I'm reading Red Mars right now again, and I'm it's like I'm really struck by like how like quite reactionary a lot of that book is. and I'm kind of fine with it because, like, it's really badly written, uh, you know? I mean, it's, like, it's a great book because it, like, basically is, like, a how-to guide to go to Mars, which is really fun to read, but, you know, it's not, like, you wouldn't read it for the writing, really, necessarily. Um, so, like, that's a thing. I think the other thing, too, is, like, there's there's a lot of narratives of control in science fiction, which I think is something that, you know, everybody wants to feel that sense of control, right? Like, everybody's feeling anxiety in the current contemporary era, right? Um, Like that precarity is hitting all of us and it's hitting all of us in different ways. And so uh, a lot of what sci-fi does is Plays out fantasies of control, whether you're you're being controlled and the anxiety that causes, or taking back that control. So, think about Octavia Butler. Um, you know, like the first thing I did when I was out of school was I sat down and read nine Octavia Butler novels in a row, and I'm still having nightmares about it like two years later, um, because like that's like so much of her her books are about like how you navigate coercion as somebody with very little power. You know, that's like a theme that runs through all of her work, which is like. Stressful. Um, but, you know, and, and or uh, Ursula K. Kayla Gwynn's uh, Lathe of Heaven, um, kind of a, a novel novella, right? About um, somebody who can dream the future and the future will just change. And the fact that, like, then. You know, this person starts getting manipulated by their psychiatrist, uh, and you know, institutionalized in that way, and brought under that form of control. Um, and like, how do how do we get out of that? Or, or speaker for the dead, right? That sort of benevolent figure um, who comes in in a crisis to reestablish order and control. Uh, I think that's that's a big part of it too. Is everybody's feeling off kilter and off balance and searching for answers? And, and science fiction, when it's, you know, whether it's done by a conservative or you know, progressive creators or publishers or whatever, um, you know, unless you're being really explicit and making people really pissed off, you know, like I don't think a lot of conservatives are reading Octavia Butler's work, for example, and being like, oh yeah, I really see myself in this one. Um, (laughs) but you know, unless you're being really explicit about who you're writing for, who that audience is, as we've been talking about, um, I think it's easy for everybody to draw on that and to like mobilize it and to see themselves in it. Yeah. Um...
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that both of you touched on like a lot of the majority of things I have thought about, but like in really eloquent and amazing ways. Um, but yeah, just like another aspect that I think like can draw like conservative audiences or like douchey bros, to be honest, is um, like the technology aspect and like the unearned power aspect and like like you know like machines and like yeah, just like having access to like a new type of power that has like. Basically nothing to do with yourself that you can just like do whatever you want with. I think like has a lot of appeal. Um, yeah, like we see a lot of like, yeah, like scary conservative bros who like love like giant guns and like stuff like that. I think that there's like a similarity in science fiction where like they can like yeah like it and it is about like power and control and things like that and, and yeah and feeling like the rebel or feeling like the one under threat. Like you know, like they think that like they are the oppressed ones because they can't. Do whatever, I don't know. There's a lot of things they complain about. But yeah, yeah, so it is like Yeah, I think it is also like exciting to like those type of people that like like this idea that you can have access to this kind of power that you like don't need other people to support you You don't really need anything and you like just as yourself can like achieve what you want Mm -hmm. and that's scary even though like to me like that's inspiring in a way or like to some of us like I'm like, oh, that's cool that you like don't need like You know, like the majority of society to like support you on a thing, or like you can like break out of these like dominant structures, but then, yeah, that does like appeal to people who are like the complete opposite of me at the same time.
1: Yeah, Yeah, that's interesting too. It makes me think about, um, I don't know if anybody's read uh, Speculative Blackness by Andre Carrington. Um, So he's a a sci-fi academic and he wrote this great book. Oh, one of the chapters is called The Once and Future Benjamin Sisko. Like, you want a preview of how awesome this book is? Uh, But he talks about um, the ways in which Early sci-fi was was consumed by people, right? So in the '40s, in particular, um, a lot of science fiction was really pushing racial boundaries, and as Noah mentioned, like he was using uh, alien species as metaphors. You know, it still happens all the time for, for racialized people. Um, but he tells this incredible story, this incredible true story of of you know these fan fiction communities that were popping up everywhere, right? And they would communicate through mail, and then they would have these big conventions and publications and like zines that they would, uh, you know spread around, um, and subscribe to and stuff. And he talks about how the first black fan fiction writer who was well known was actually a white person who took up this black persona for years, years and years and years. Uh, and you know, was also writing other stuff under his own name, but kind of took up and consumed this identity of this black person to prove that science fiction was diverse, essentially to basically like Fuck with the haters and fuck with the people who are trying to keep black people and people of color out of sci-fi at that time. Um, and like Andre, he just he comes across as such a nice guy. He's so generous with with this person who's done this. Um, but you know this this way of consuming these identities, right? And to, to reiterate them in a way that it becomes about you. And to take that up, um, rather than I guess like going back to what I was saying about you know just believing people and not necessarily having to understand them or understand where they're coming from, but just trusting them, right? Like that consumption and that like reorientation, I think is also a thing.
3: Yeah, there's a. I've just started reading this Tad Williams book Overland, and at the beginning. Uh, There's a bunch of it is set in South Africa. And at the beginning, he's like, yeah, I took a bunch of liberties with like explaining Bushman culture. But maybe the biggest liberty was that Bushman will exist at all in 100 years. Okay, enjoy the book. (laughs) And it was just like, whoa. Like, anyways, this book was written a few like quite a few years ago. So I'm pretty sure it wasn't appraised of the current. Discourse on cultural appropriation, but it's interesting to see, to just read someone being like, ah, I just made up a bunch of stuff and attributed to this culture because it fit with my story. And that's, yeah, a kind of power. Yeah. Um, But there's also the inverse of that, or sort of inverse of that, where you have James Tiptree Jr., right, who long wrote as a man and was attributed. In one review, somebody uh, claimed that she wrote the most masculine sci-fi possible and then but and then years later it came out that it was a woman who was writing this all along and like people were obsessed with her masculinity in reviewing her before that's so
1: funny a
2: reveal yeah.
3: so funny. do you
1: want to add things?
2: I mean I think people have pretty much covered it like I think it's like the thing that everyone has said about how like the future is Unknown and so everybody wants it to be their version of the future and I think when There's the ability to do that by like building your own world or writing your own version of the future Then everybody's going to do it in the way that they want it to look and so I think that also allows for a certain Um, amount of like impunity to write these like really fucked up future worlds because it's like well it's just a story it doesn't you know it's we're just whatever it's like the same kind of like defensiveness that happens around anything else but I think people take advantage of that because they're like well sci-fi is sci-fi it's all fantastical anyways so we might as well write these like really intensely like white supremacist futures or what have you Um, and I think there's also just like a lot of um, like, even if we think about just like the names of like two of you know, two of the like um, I guess like biggest or whatever, like most Commercially successful um, sci-fi franchises like the names like Star Trek and Star Wars, right? So like thinking about like this idea of like you know adventuring and pioneering and like colonizing places and people and things and this really like for you know like um, Star Trek, like even just like the fact that it's like partially based on this like old show called Wagon Train, or maybe I'm messing up the title, but basically this like you know Western pioneer travel around in covered wagons and discover things, um, and so that appeals to a lot of people in a lot of different ways, but it also appeals to like you know the the sort of like conservative uh, like you know straight white dude that we've kind of been referencing as the sort of like who is the, the terrifying uh, sci-fi audience we can think of mm-hmm. um, but I think also like yeah just like the machismo in that right and that appeals to a lot of people this uh, this idea of like conquering worlds and conquering other species um, or like it, even just like boldly going where no one has gone before like that can be interpreted in so many different ways but one of the ways that can be interpreted in is like taking things to be your own um, and that kind of like colonizing of things again with a kind of impunity because if it's all fantastical it doesn't really matter Um, and so I think that appeals to a lot of people because it allows them to have this kind of like uh, yeah just like escapism where things can be you know exactly as they want or where it's like fine for like women to be treated in subservient roles because that's not a thing that's just how it works on planet xyz or whatever um even just the ways that like and again like the the close like the the closer an author is to like the this like various dominant positions within society the the closer like their work becomes right. So again, like with like Nalo Hopkinson and Octavia Butler, like there doesn't leave room for that because they've so specifically created their worlds. And again, like the conservative audiences that we're talking about aren't probably consuming like Nalo Hopkinson and Octavia Butler and those folks. But even thinking about like, for example, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna talk about Voyager. Sorry, um, <laughs> but like Janeway, right? So um, like. In this one way, you know, it's like, oh, she's a woman captain, and that's a thing, and that's supposed to be progressive. And in some ways, it is, like, especially given the time. But there's so much commentary on her ability to be a captain; it's constantly called into question. Um, and I think that's done deliberately, partially to comment on, like, you know, the what we would hope it would be commenting on, like, you know, the kind of like, what is it like to be a woman in a traditionally like male role or whatever. But at the same time, I think it's also called into question because if she was allowed to be to, um, like too much of a strong woman character or whatever, uh, they would lose a lot of the fan base. They would lose the more conservative fan base. They would lose a lot of the like the the male audiences. Um, and so there is this, I think there is a very deliberate like questioning of her her role as captain and making sure that she's constantly being checked, whether it's by like members of her own crew or you know uh, other beings that they encounter. There's a really like make sure that she you know she doesn't get too many ideas kind of thing. And so I think that like speaks. A a lot into kind of how stuff has to play in order not to lose the like conservative audiences which are like just statistically going to make up a lot of the mainstream. Potentially also to gain, the, or not
3: to detract from what you're saying, but potentially also to gain um, a sort of like Working woman audience of the time, totally. I know the the character of Janeway resonated a lot with my mother, for example.
2: No, to I think Janeway fills so many things, but I just mean it in terms yeah. of thinking about like the uh, like conservative audiences or like the kind of like less people who are not consuming science fiction in a way where they're like, we want a really different thing. Um, trying to make sure that like stuff stays in this place because yeah, I think Janeway feels like appeals to a lot of different mm-hmm. people in a lot of different ways.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah before we move on I just wanted to comment a little more on like metaphors and like how sometimes like the metaphors of science fiction like work really well or like feel liberatory or something and then other times it's just like a way to erase like uh, to erase like race or disability or like gender or like sexuality or like the like oppression around that like like whenever I watch something and like the only people of color in the show like are aliens with like a different color of skin or like like it will be like people of color like actors or actress like people like playing those roles but like then everyone who's like a human is white or whatever like that like i mean okay i don't really i didn't i only watched like half of it but i watched like half of Guardians of the Galaxy and i was just like i don't want to watch this anymore like you just i don't know like i don't even remember cuz it was a few years ago but i just like that just like felt like an example to me of like oh you're like kind of making some metaphors like about race or whatever, but like at, but you are actually just making it so that it's not like as applicable like as it should be or like it the metaphor is erased because like you are yeah. I don't know. Does that make sense to anyone else? Yeah.
1: It's t- it's like taking it out of out of people's bodies in a way mm-hmm. and putting it in these like new types of bodies and then trying to play it on that. Yeah. Rather than just like owning it, yeah. owning the fact that like you're a white supremacist.
0: But like not even doing it well. Yeah. Just, mm, yeah. 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 Um. Where it's it's what? I'm wondering. Should we skip this question and just do? The yeah. First? Let's. Yeah. Let's do that. Are you guys okay to skip the fifth question and just do the sixth one? Oh, I'm to yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Okay. If you like have, then yeah. Let's let's go for it. though. Like. yeah. Okay. Um. So. Yeah, I'm not sure, maybe we'll go like 15 minutes over or something, we'll see what happens. But um, yeah, the next question is, what? where do you see what's going on in society being reflected in contemporary sci-fi? Did I say that?
3: Uh, I guess I said we can talk about this, but I mean, I think it's interesting. Uh, to go back to the Hugo's, like not last year, but the year before, the Three Body Problem won, and like that's interesting because it's the first time a non-English language book won the Hugo Awards, and I don't know. I think we're in a period of geopolitical instability where something somewhere like China is going to become increasingly important, and so it's interesting to see this na- this narrative getting popularized. But I think don't think would have been popularized like earlier in history about the Chinese perspective on interacting with extraterrestrials as opposed to, like we mentioned, there's always the world government, but the world government is always, like the US is always in charge of the world government, like all the time. And so it's interesting to kind of see that center being loosened in Sapphire. I also think that there's like, some very fascinating stuff from the '60s that was written that is maps on closely today, or even something like—I don't want to draw too close a parallel—but people talk about like Atwood and like *The Handmaid's Tale* being like what's going on in the states. But there was also a novel by um, from the late '60s—I can't remember exactly—one called *The Jagged Orbit* by this guy John Brunner, and he wrote about a race war happening in 2014, and it's. Um, and he actually, it's really, anyways, he was getting into like playing with form. So there's chapters that are like one letter long and then chapters that are like half the book and stuff. But he um, he also excerpted a lot from newspaper articles at the time and then would comment on the newspaper articles in the next chapter. And it's interesting to see how his predictions about where race relations were going already at the end of the 60s. Um, mapped very closely onto the conversations that started arising around like the 2016 election and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so it's kind of, I mean, I don't know. I guess that's like an, the future in sci-fi is always moving and shifting. And I think that that's really interesting, because we can look at older sci-fi that accurately represents today. And anyways, it's a gift that keeps on giving. I'm yeah. sure it had something to say to the people then. And the the name.
1: Yeah, I also, yeah, I guess like also to talk about Atwood, um, the one that I always think of, I honestly didn't love The Handmaid's Tale when I read it. I thought it like ended really abruptly and it made me really mad for like two weeks. Um, but Oryx and Crake is the one that like I always think of, like, like the rise of the internet and like what people are using the internet for um, and the ways in which the internet both like creates intense networks of surveillance, but then also like really isolates and alienates people from one another um I found that like fascinating but one of the things um totally forgot to mention this earlier but I I do a a podcast on science fiction called Métis in space um, that uh deals like we watch a science fiction tv show or movie that deals with indigenous people somehow and then comment on it and one of the things we've done about three seasons or so and one of the things that we've noticed is that um starting in the 60s portrayals of indigenous people start to become a lot better, like, more respectful, you know, we're real human beings, we're not just like war-whooping ghosts somewhere, you know, in the past in Twilight Zone, uh, which which is just a real fucking episode, Um, you know, uh, but then you hit about, like, from 2001 onwards, the quality of the portrayals of Indigenous people just like plummets. Like it gets way more racist, way more conservative, way more reactionary. Uh, so you watch something from 2014, and it, it feels like you're watching, you know, that the first ever Doctor Who episode. I don't know if anybody's seen that one from the archives, um, but it's God, so goddamn racist. Um, and I've I, like that's been just like, incredibly interesting to me. Uh, Or, you know, think about the redesign of the Klingons and the new Star Trek reboots, right? They, you know, I think a lot of what TNG and DS9 both did was really, you know, try to, like, you know, work with that balance between, like, these are very different people with a very different society, but, like, we can have this respectful engagement and relationship that recognizes, you know, they're not just, like, some weird other. But then, you know, these new Klingons are just like savages, um, hyper-violent, hyper-militaristic. You get like no person, you know, like there's, you see just them very briefly in this instance of violence against women. Or uh, I watched Suicide Squad when I was on the plane. What a terrible choice. Don't do that to yourself. Um, but, you know, Adam Beach was... Uh, is uh, Slipknot in that movie and everybody was so excited, like finally an indigenous, you know, he's a villain, but like an indigenous supervillain. that's so kick ass. Uh, he's in the movie for about five minutes um, he doesn't even get an introduction. Like all, like there's kind of like these, uh, sort of outtake bits where everybody's like, you know, this is Harley Quinn and she's sexy and crazy. And here's her origin story. You know, like here's, I can't even remember a uh, Deadshot. Like he's like a dad and here's his origin story, right? Like Adam Beach doesn't even get that as Slipknot. He's in the movie for five minutes. He rolls up, punches a woman, knocks her out, and then gets beheaded. That's it. That's the end. Uh, it's brutal, you know? And, So there's this idea, you know, we've been talking about the importance of representation. uh, And I think, you know, like, you know, back in the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, you know, and fighting for that kind of represent, and even into the 90s, you know, fighting for that kind of representation. Of course, there are people who who still don't have, you know, anything remotely approaching representation. Um, But, you know, I I think part of the thing is that's just not enough anymore. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's a reaction to... Uh, marginalized people becoming more organized, having more access to media, to production, to commentary through, you know, things like the internet. Um, and yeah, I see that as, as very much a reaction to that, and I think it's really important um, to push to push back against that. Um, you know, another great example is Belana Torres, going back to Voyager. Um, I cannot stand her. She's she's the standard, you know, there's a half-breed in in every Star Trek, right? Um, But Belina, you know, there's an episode where she literally gets split into her Klingon half and her human half, and they're fighting, right? Like, and that's her whole thing, is that like she's got that half-breed angst, right? Like the half-breed, you know, if you're a half-breed, you don't have that angst. Like, you're usually fine. Like, you might have that angst a bit when you're a kid or whatever. But, like, you know, like, I don't go around being, like, I've got one foot on the sidewalk and one foot in the canoe. Like, what do I do? You know? But that's, like, that's her whole arc through the whole fucking thing. Sorry, sorry for my language. But, um, you know, and it's just, like... Why? What is this doing for people? What, like, what is this? You know. Uh, anyway, and of course, it just opens her up to all sorts of like vulnerability to violence and all this other shit. Um, so, yeah, I think like that's that's all of a thing, and I think that it, it really is tied to scarcity anxiety and precarity as well. A lot of the science fiction that we're seeing, either you know, as as folks have been saying with regards to sort of like conservatism, um, the reaction is to to make sci fi. That's not. That's not really thinking about these broader issues. That's not really addressing what we see in society. But it's kind of just like PAP, right? Like let's just g- get some space babes out there. Let's get some like big guns and like let's go for it because you know we don't want to think about the fact that we're all working like three full-time jobs that we might not have in a month um, because there's no contracts, there's no unions. Like capitalism is running rampant everywhere, et cetera. Um, but then I also think that it's you know, that scarcity anxiety actually like gets mapped onto things like television and movies and, you know, that scarcity anxiety is like also present in these capitalist structures that make that sci-fi. So, you know, also going back to Guardians of the Galaxy, I don't know if anybody's seen the second one, but the character of Mantis, Is anybody else fucked up about the character of Mantis? Because holy crap, I was like... Seriously? Like, super orientalist, right? Like, innocent, really doesn't know what's going on, is just happy to be there, like, very helpful, like, no personality at all, like, oh, brutal, you know? And like, is this really where we're at? It is, uh, obviously, but, like, um, anyway, that's, sorry, that was kind of just a rant, but, uh, (laughs) anybody else? Do you want to
0: say anything?
2: I mean, I think folks covered a lot of it, but I guess, like, one thing, to me, that always stands out with like the sort of like how, um, like contemporary society slash like politics is represented in sci-fi is like there's so much commentary that happens through the use of technology and kind of like how that's treated and I think that's like true. It's really I think that's one of the um, easiest things to kind of track because you just you can literally look at like you know uh, you have like Cell by Stephen King for example so just like talking about like cell phones tracking or even you know even going back to like Bradbury and stuff like this so really like actually literally keeping up with like what technology is available when and how those things like the different ways in which uh, that stuff is being used to spy on people, for example. So like the X-Files is great for that because there's like so many different ways where they'll show, you know, like phones being tapped and things being stuck in in light bulbs or like stuck in a ceiling or whatever, but it's it's also pretty low tech um, because it was the 90s. And so like thinking about just like, and then how does that stuff look now and, you know, that kind of stuff starts to progress towards like microchips in people's heads and things that are sort of like much more insidious and much more like on a um, a much less like obvious scale because we do currently have technology that exists that can be that tinier that can sort of like infiltrate our existence. In that way, and so I think that's one thing that stands out a lot to me about how sci-fi reflects like what's currently going on is that like anxiety about being watched, that anxiety about being surveilled um, by like you know Big Brother, so to speak, or the powers that be. And, Um, even thinking about, yeah, like I think X-Files is a really interesting example thinking about like all the conspiracy stuff and the way that they portray like how the government is watching and kind of like the idea that, okay, we know the government is corrupt, but ultimately they still kind of seem to like the government, Um, so it's, again, back to the thing where you can only stray so far, but I think, um, yeah, just like, uh, another thing um, that stands out for me a lot, again, like with the use of technology as it relates to like ability and disability, is like you start to see really creative ways of being able to help folks adapt to their their environment, whether that's. Um, you know, through something like uh, Geordie's visor, um, but also like there's an episode of uh, Deep Space Nine where there's a person who normally lives on a low-gravity planet and then is coming aboard Deep Space Nine and they have to like, reconfigure everything and build her a wheelchair because she can't um, function. In the same ways in a like regular gravity environment, and so in some ways that's super interesting. But they also fuck it up really hard. Okay, Molly said the F word first, so I'm good. <laughs> um, but they, you know, and so thinking about like that kind of thing, but then also with a lot of that, it starts to you have on the one hand like the use of technology or kind of like normalizing different ways of functioning. At the same time, there's also this really scary like eugenics track um, mm-hmm. that we see like kind of like in different ways, like depending on the era that you're looking from sci-fi and. And that's kind of always present, and whether that's like, you know, through a dystopia where like you know unfit children are the ones being cleansed from society, or um, you know just like the the fixing of people before they're born or whatever, like it just gets into eugenics. Um, and in some in some works, obviously that's portrayed in a way where it's like this is horrifying. Let's not allow this to be our future. And in other works, it's portrayed as a sort of like appeal of the future where it's like you can customize your baby. Um, and so I think it's really interesting to see both sides of those of, of, of that kind of thing in particular, and to think about like how people relate to the potentials of what like technology and um, the sort of like you know, ever ever progressing ideas, um, the sort of like the holding both sides of that. Great. More of that eradication of alterity.
3: Yeah. It's like everyone gets to be the same in the awesome in the yeah. future. Yeah. Um,
1: so we're on the last question. We know that we went over uh, because nerds do that. Um, but we wanted to open this up to everybody. And so like either if you have thoughts on stuff that we've been talking about previously, or you want to answer this question, because um, we feel like it's a kind of a segue into the next workshop as well to get folks thinking. Um, and so the question for everybody is, um, What are your thoughts or could you talk a little bit about the role of fan-created media and fan engagement in science fiction and what the potential of those things are in relation to radical politics and organizing?
0: Right, so like when we were talking about it, like one of like something that like we love about sci-fi is is like the like the extensive amounts of like fan created things that exist. Like fan fiction, like cosplay, like whatever. Like even if we don't love all of the those things specifically, it's just like it is kind of amazing like the extent to which this stuff exists. Um.
1: Um, Yeah, we had we had a friend who um, was our like we really wanted to be on the panel But she she doesn't live here um, and she's working on a piece for the zine That's talking about how fan fiction made her realize that she was queer um, Which is like super exciting, you know, and I remember reading fan fiction um, when I was a teenager uh, growing up and going to Catholic school and not knowing how sex worked or like anything. And and fan fiction was how I was introduced to that. And looking back on it and laughing because the science fiction that you read, or uh, the fan fiction, I should say, that you read when you're a teenager, um, firstly is like unabashedly pervy, right? Like teens are unabashed pervs, which is incredible. Uh, But it's also like, you know, we're reading sci-fi or fan fiction that's usually written by people who also don't know how sex works, right? <laughs> <laughs> so it's like you're learning about sex from people who also don't know what's going... And so, like, you're reading back, you're like, that is physically impossible. <laughs> but at the time, you're like, yeah, sweet. Like, kind of, like, subversive and, like, learning and, like curving out and like how incredible that is that that existed and and especially you know for for um, young people or or people generally who don't have access to that kind of information or that kind of community where they can learn about that in respectful ways um, and how how boundary pushing and and how subversive that can be for us uh, yeah. yeah anybody else have anything they want to say about fanfic comic-cons cosplays
0: fan movies or even just like the elements of like science fiction that we take in our own creation of things like in mm-hmm. like our own like writings or like music or like whatever like, yeah
2: it's like one thing that I find interesting about fan created versions of stuff or fan fiction or fanzines or what have you, even just stuff that's like kind of loosely based on a thing but isn't necessarily fanfiction as such. Um, I think one thing that's really interesting about that is taking the narratives that are presented in the original work and rewriting them, Um, but I think often what people do with that is rewrite different ways for the characters to experience different kinds of trauma. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a there's a real poten- there is a potential there, and I think there's a lot of power in that because one thing that like often goes into trying to like work through trauma or like things that we experience that we kind of have absolutely no other tools to deal with is trying to find some way to reconcile that that we just like it's beyond our our capacity to deal with it. it's beyond our capacity to understand and so in being able to literally rewrite what happens to a character or rewrite uh, a story so that they come out on top or so that they're the ones who are defeated eating.